Directors Club podcast. Before we begin, oh, I have something special for you, the listener here. You can vote. Yes, you can vote on which director will be covered in late November. Um, no, this has no tie to the upcoming presidential election. This is all about uh, choosing a director for the show here, and you're in control. Um, since the beginning of November, I'm going to be covering Peter Bogdanovich with supporting characters host Bill Ackerman. And then in uh, like early to mid-December, Patrick Rapole will be returning once again to cover William Wyler with me. Since both of those guys have kind of lengthy filmographies, I, would, I guess you would say, I thought it would be a good idea to create a poll of directors um, with smaller filmographies that we've yet to cover on this show. And I thought I'd let the listener decide um, which director is going to go in between Bogdanovich and William Wyler, um, probably, probably to be released around November or Thanksgiving-ish, I should say. So you can be the, the deciding factor. Right now, we've got about 314 votes, but it would be wonderful to get some more. Maybe get that to 400 or so, but possibly more? I've decided to extend this poll until the end of the month. So you have until Friday, September 30th, to cast your vote. This will be linked in the show notes, of course, but you can also go to tinyurl.com slash dcpoll11. That's dcpoll11. So tinyurl.com slash dcpoll11, you can choose between the following directors. Edgar Wright, Ryan Johnson, Jonathan Glazer, Andrea Arnold, Andrew Dominic, Richard Kelly, and Oscar Ferhati. All names that I'm excited to talk about at some point in the future, but you can decide who gets picked first for November. Yes, it's another Directors Club listener poll, which we haven't done since, geez, I don't know, way back when we did Catherine Bigelow, um, that was the choice back then. So that was great, and I'm glad to see so many votes have been cast. But come on, you know, you you know, you want to, you know, you want to hear some Andre Arnold. Well, I'm not going to force your hand. You just decide yourself which you, of those directors you'd rather hear. The poll is linked in the show notes. So yeah, and around you know that time. It's, you know, we get to the holiday season, so probably on Black Friday, I'm going to do something for you guys. I'm going to present a listener contest for chances for you to win a Criterion Blu-ray, an Amazon gift card, and a whole lot more. So stay tuned, stay subscribed, leave a review on iTunes, as always, because that helps out the show. And most importantly, go to nowplayingnetwork.net for updates and links, not only to this show, but... You gotta see. You gotta check out Vinyl Emergency with uh, recent guest Rocky Vitolo. Man, Jim Hankey did a great job with that. Supporting characters, which just put out another wonderful interview with film comment writer Violet Luca. Tracks of the Damned put out a great short film festival episode featuring yours truly. I actually talk a little bit about um, dream work, so go, go go give that a listen. I think I did okay. I was a rambling mess at times, but that's par for the course. But I really do think Sam Deegan steals the show with her take on a, the earliest Blue Nell short that we've all seen in a uh, film history class, I presume. But anyway, you got to check out those shows along with Movie Madness, which should be coming back, hosted by Eric Childress. And uh, there's also Fresh Perspective, hosted by Jeff and Rebecca, with their most recent episode being about Black Swan. So you have a pinata of podcasts to swing at. Crack that open. Subscribe to some great content. 
Speaking of subscribing, you really, really should check out my other show, which is hopefully becoming less of a side project and possibly going to be more on par with this show in terms of frequency and content. Um, I'm also going to be releasing Director's Club on one particular day of the week. Uh, it'll still be a bi-weekly show, but you get to look forward to um, this show potentially being released on a Monday or a Friday. I have to decide on that yet, but... Um, it's going to be more consistent, both Directors Club and Pop Culture Club, but the reason why I hope you'll subscribe to Pop Culture Club is that i got some great interviews coming up. And if you've noticed on the Facebook fan page, Directors Club and Pop Culture Club are kind of on the same team now. So if you'll subscribe to both shows, Charles, if you'll subscribe to both shows, that would be a, a great help for me. Um, but Pop Culture Club... I got an interview with the director. I got an interview with a musician that both mean a lot to me, and they're great conversations I think you're going to enjoy immensely. So please do subscribe. The most recent episode was just released uh, about a week ago, and that was with Matt Johnson, whose most recent film, Operation Avalanche, is quite good, as well as director Joshua Marston, who you'll remember his debut feature was Maria Full of Grace. Well, his latest stars Michael Shannon and Rachel Weisz. Uh, his latest film is Complete Unknown, and I talked to both Matt Johnson and Joshua Marston on the latest Pop Culture Club to learn more about their craft, and that was a great time. So check that out at popcultureclub.net, which is hopefully also going to be kind of my review blog, which isn't always easy to keep up with, since um, you know writing is not as... Uh, I don't know. It doesn't come as easily to me as putting out audio content, but I'll do my best. For now, let's get on with the show here, since I couldn't be more excited for this episode that you're about to hear. The director of choice is a classic genius. Um, and our great returning guest is Chris Olson. So we have a fantastic discussion on the true pioneer of independent filmmaking, the master of the B picture. He is none other than Roger Corman. Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski, returning here after a brief trip of my own. <laughs> uh, well, it's more its more of a vacation of sorts. Um, I spent a huge chunk of it, though, being a little under the weather and unenergetic, <laughs> which was disappointing, but I still got to watch a lot of movies, and I would say I caught up with about a half dozen or so for this highly anticipated episode. My guest today is a gentleman and a scholar, a pop culture professor that you might remember from the recent Carnival of Souls commentary episode from Tracks of the Damned, which I loved, or you might remember him way back when he defended Fear X on the Nicholas Winding Refn episode of Director's Club. Welcome back, the one and only Chris Olson. Thank you very much for having me, Jim. I really appreciate it. I'm very excited to talk about uh, the topic for today. I am, too. This is a thrill for me to finally catch up with some classics from mm -hmm. a very creative talent who is responsible for introducing us to so many filmmakers as a result of working under him. He is none other than... Roger Corman. 
The king of the bees. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's... There's a lot to talk about, and as you can imagine, there is just way too many films of his to see in a short span of time, so I imagine somewhere down the road a sequel episode could happen. But we'll be touching upon, I'd say, the more notable titles throughout his career, in addition to just how he became so influential in the world of uh, independent filmmaking and how he did it on the cheap as well. Yeah, and and not just independent filmmaking, but Hollywood in oh, general. True, yeah. I mean, his his impact on Hollywood is just incalculable. Incalculable. It's it's crazy how many people uh, got their start under him. <laughs> Right, right. I know. It's just even going to see American Graffiti at the drive-in. I, I couldn't help but think of you know rock, 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 rock and roll high school, and mm-hmm. just just how his sensibilities wound up influencing so many great people, and like you said, impacted the blockbuster. I mean, certainly Jaws and even Star Wars wouldn't be what they were without Corman being somewhat, you know, responsible for for just how they how these two directors approach things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that well, we'll get to all that very soon. Um you know, uh I got to say it's 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 been wonderful um listening to your podcast and catching up with some episodes um tell tell everybody a little bit about pop culture lens before we dive into Corman here. Sure. For for people who aren't aware of the Pop Culture Lens, it's a podcast that uh, I co-created with my partner, Carolyn Reinhardt of Dominican University. And the goal of the podcast, we wanted to kind of, we wanted to make it like a a public intellectual uh, show where we would take these sort of academic theories and make them uh, accessible to lay people. So what we do is we look at media from the past uh, and try to figure out what its relevance to today is by applying different theories like, uh, you know, feminism or uh, Goffman's uh, uh, theory of performance and and uh, many, many others, uh, just as a way to to sort of make these these lofty ideas understandable to people who may not have a lot of schooling under their belt. Yeah, no, that's that's a great idea because, I mean, I've learned more and more over time that I'm a visual learner and kind of an audio learner these days mm-hmm. as well. To where sometimes if I see there's a, you know, a 50-page philosophical essay in a film, I might bypass it. Um, I'll go through it, and certainly if there's a Cliff's Notes, I'm all for it. But I think I'm just more in tune to listening to somebody uh, deconstruct something as opposed to reading it. Not to say that like I'm you know lazy. It's just <laughs> it's just that nowadays with with so much content to filter through, it's very hard to sort of sit down and discipline myself to because um, I did that throughout college, man. <laughs> yeah, and I mean you know there, to me a lot of the ideas that that people who are in academia put forth are really important uh, beyond the walls of academia. Sure, uh, but they they may not write them in such a way that that people who don't have five years of grad school under their belt might not 
have any idea what they're talking about. Um, and I know I get frustrated, like when I read, because like here's an example, like I think Judith Butler has some great ideas on gender and and uh, how we construct gender. But when I tried to read her book, uh, Gender Trouble, it was almost impenetrable, mm. uh, and it seemed deliberately designed that way. So to me, it, it's it's a good idea for people to sort of what what Carrie Lynn likes to call it is uh, I'm an academic translator. <laughs> <laughs> and she likes to say that I'm translating these ideas for people who may not have all the jargon and all of the 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 many many years of study under uh, under their belts. Yeah, I think I think that's very important to have because you know it, this this kind of idea also comes up with um, with documentary filmmaking and when mm-hmm. in which you present an idea, but if you do it like in a very sort of pedantic or dry fashion where, you know, it's just not visually interesting to look at. A lot of people say, well, why don't you just read a book on the subject instead? Um, but that the same goes for the book itself. It should be engaging and understandable to where it is something you can just flip through the pages to and just get through it and not feel like it's this daunting task. Yeah, exactly. So it depends on the medium and how it's presented, of course. But either way, a documentary should be treated like an art form, and a book should be treated like an art form that's also somewhat, I guess you could say, entertaining to some yeah. degree, to where you c- it's not a huge undertaking. So yeah. That makes sense. Exactly. And that and that goes along the lines of like what Marshall McLuhan said when he said the medium is the message. You know, we have <laughs> yep. to tailor these things, and and uh, but I also think as even as we tailor these things to the specific medium, we can still make them penetrable so that people who uh, might you know be curious about these things but don't have all the training can still sort of uh, uh, get something from them. Yeah. No. No. Exactly. And you and you do that very well in the show. I mean, I've I've dabbled in. F- you know, philosophy, psychology, and neuroscience and stuff like that. But, I I mean, I like to go down the rabbit hole even further when it comes to deconstructing art and what a film could possibly mean. But it's impossible to know everything. And certainly, um, in terms of sociology, I don't know as much about feminism as I would like. I certainly know the basics, but I I think it's important to have podcasts and forums out there like this that do put more into perspective, you know, in layman's terms. And, you know, it's something that even occurred to me when I was looking over neuroscience articles and feeling like that was a daunting task because Mm -hmm. a lot of the research on there still involves statistics and research methods that I haven't retained as strongly as I would have liked to where I thought it would be a great idea at some point down the road to have a neuroscience podcast that does what you guys are doing with, with pop culture to put it in layman's terms and more accessible terms for, you know, even somebody who has no neuroscience background at all would find it interesting. So. Yeah. And I mean that, you know, like when we, the reason we focus on pop culture is because so much of what Carrie and I do, like I'm a film guy and sure. she's a fan and she's a fandom. Uh, she, she wants to get into fandom scholarship and things like that. But our idea was that 
the humanities doesn't really have a Neil deGrasse Tyson, <laughs> you know, somebody who can can take these ideas and make people excited about them. You know, he he had yeah. that great he has that great line about how he like when he's walking down the street, he just wants to grab people and just be like, "We're all made of star stuff, isn't that exciting?" <laughs> Whereas, you know, I just want to walk down the street and be just like, "Gender is performative, isn't that amazing?" <laughs> right. and, and try to get people interested and excited about these <laughs> ideas that are really important, uh, but may not be important to somebody who you know is trying to just pay the bills and things but it might be something that could help them to understand themselves a little bit better so that's what with the goal with the pop culture lens was was to show them how these ideas are kind of around us all the time uh and they manifest in the things that we engage with uh in a, in a popular medium yeah no totally one of the earliest examples for me early on was carl sagan yeah, like, he made me very excited about astronomy and the universe, and you know, just just did it in the same. Way. I almost thought of him as like you know the um, the Mister Rogers of <laughs> astronomy because like I, I was always looking forward to just hearing him talk and you know speak to speak to me directly about things that he found interesting. Yeah, that's so. a great way to put it. Actually, I like that, Mister Rogers of astronomy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, people can put down contact all they want, but I feel I still think his spirit is infused into that movie, even if it's compromised somewhat. Oh yeah, I just rewatched yeah. it, and I still think it holds up really well. Yeah, 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 and I, fi- I, I I'm just hoping that since next year it's it's its twentieth uh, anniversary, there'll be some kind of re-release because I'm dying to see that opening again on the big screen. In the, yep. in the theater, and it'd be interesting to see if there's any kind of sort of reappraisal. Right, right, yeah. I, I'm most people I know are pretty down on it, but I've I've at least managed to find like five or six people who are just as crazy in love with it as I am. So that's nice. <laughs> well, I've count me as number seven, I guess. Sweet. <laughs> so um, speaking of Zemeckis, well, no, I don't think Zemeckis got to start here, but. Um, I don't recall Zemeckis being within the Corman stuff, but I know Joe Dante was. Clearly, yeah. 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 I mean, I think that was my first exposure, being a huge fan early on of Dante and him name-checking Roger Corman quite often. That might have been the first time I heard the name and what he did for his career early on. He was born in Detroit and wound up making films. It's true. Produced and directed Poe adaptations. He only worked with very low budgets. Known as the Pope of Pop Cinema, but he's Roger Corman to me. Bucket of Blood or the Wild Angels. Turned William Shatner into the intruder. He liked to cast Mr. Pioneer, a hero, Roger Corman, indeed. Oh, he takes care of his friends, broke out because of him. Joe Dante, James Yeah, I mean, he was 
one of the first American independent filmmakers to create work entirely on his own terms. Um, maybe early on, someone like Val Luton, you know, in the 40s at RKO, he created a lot of atmospheric horror films through his own vision um, in like that Studios B unit. But, you know, Corman really just exploded with content, um, making films with one take and very little money, um, sometimes just taking days or a week <laughs> to get yeah. the film done, which is really incredible. Yeah, and, and just, you know, when you talk about, like, true independence, I mean, he definitely, I, I see him as kind of ground zero for American cinema uh, because he did work so much just completely outside of the studio system, not even in their B departments, but so much outside of the studio system. Yeah. Uh, and really opened the doors for a lot of independent filmmakers that would come later. Uh, and Corman really uh, tr blazed a trail in a lot of ways. Yeah, he had the enthusiasm to do it just simply because I think his very first experience working with the studio was pretty underwhelming for him. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's why he's like, I'm just going to do this my way, basically. Mm -hmm. You know, and he wasn't a jerk about it at all. It's it's funny because watching the Corman, uh, Corman's world documentary, everybody describes him as like this English professor type who's just really down-to-earth and grounded and very nice and sincere. He's not like he's not like a wide-eyed Tarantino type, which is kind of what I expected. <laughs> no, and, and it's interesting, too, because, um, you know, whereas, whereas a guy like Tarantino, uh, in addition to the excitement, he seems very uh, uh, film-literate and yeah. film-centered. And Corman, I think, was just more, well, this is something that I decided I wanted to do to make money. And, and he's more about... Uh, you know, identifying trends and making a movie that fits that trend so that it can, it can make back its budget as opposed to somebody who was just like, Oh man, I watched this movie and I loved it and it inspired me and wanted me to do this and made me want to do this. Um, I don't quite get that sense from Corman when I, when I see him in interviews. Yeah. He's, he's not like a De Palma character where it's like just film, 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 film. I just right. want to make films and, you know, re-envision older films that I loved and, you know, he he really thought, um, even initially, Corman thought he could do a better job as as a producer, and right. you know, pooled all his money together to make. Um, I think it was called the Monster from the Ocean Floor, um, and that yeah, but... that budget was like twelve grand or something, which is mm -hmm. pretty crazy. Um, yeah, but I mean, he also went on to. I mean, that movie wound up with a huge success. Uh, it made like a hundred grand, or, or no? Wait, I think he, I think he sold the film, and made a profit of a hundred grand um, from the monster from the ocean. Yeah, floor. it was something like that. I mean, yeah. he he definitely uh, uh, pulled in quite a bit of money from that movie. Indeed, yeah. Um, and then he scripted and produced the Fast and the Furious, the original, the classic. <laughs> um, I think I think he even said uh, on that podcast interview I listened to that. Um, you know the, the the creators of the franchise really appreciated the fact that um, they let uh, you know Corman let them use the name, <laughs> for, and that was good for him too. I didn't even know that. That's uh, that's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, just the title, you know, I never would have thought that either, but... Yeah, well, I mean, we can see there's another instance of him uh, uh, impacting Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, definitely. 
a very smart businessman. That's very sure. smart businessman. He was very shrewd and very canny, uh, which is really interesting because when you see him in interviews, especially in his later years, you know, he's kind of this soft-spoken grandfatherly type right. uh, who has this very sort of low cadence and he talks like this uh, and doesn't really seem like the type of person who could go into a, a boardroom and negotiate these big deals that, but he did uh, for all, throughout his entire career. Yeah. Well, maybe it was that sort of calm and collected demeanor that put people at ease, you know? Yeah. Cause not, uh, not everybody has to be a manic Paul Thomas Anderson or Tarantino <laughs> type to grab people's attention. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And he had such great ideas. Uh, and like I said, he was always kind of, uh, keeping, uh, paying attention to the trends that were going on and keeping those in mind and tailoring his his own work whether he's you know it's something that he wrote and directed or something that he produced to sort of tie into those trends and capitalize on them no that's definitely true and you know even early on he he was definitely shrewd like you mentioned and you know he would pass on he, he passed on some distribution offers from like columbia and uh, like Republic Pictures, mm-hmm. because he he wanted to join up with uh, a couple of buddies who were forming a small company called um, I believe it's American American International Pictures yes. a- AIP. Jim Nicholson, no relation to Jack, and Samuel Arkoff, I believe. Yep, Samuel Z. Arkoff. Yeah. So um, Corman gave that company the Fast and the Furious and. Off they went. Uh, you know, it's it's pretty wild to think about just the um, prolificness of Corman early on. And he just knew exactly how to rail in, like, a teenage audience. You know, because he, you know, he, he was able to tap into genre filmmaking. And I think he started out mostly in westerns, if I recall. Yeah, he started off uh, doing a lot of westerns and then kind of moved into sci-fi because he saw that, uh, you know, in the 1950s, as the sort of atomic age stuff started to kick in, he saw that that was sort of where uh, film was going to head, was going to head in terms of, uh, you know, cheaply made B-movies that could make back a lot of money because people were interested in the sci-fi and the horror aspect. Uh, So he started, he was still doing some Westerns, but he started moving away a little bit at that point uh, to capitalize on this new trend that he saw starting up. Yeah, and... I'm, I've heard him referenced many times as like the king of the drive-in movie too, mm-hmm. and that makes complete sense. You know, and transitioning into sci-fi and horror, and even to some extent like the teen melodrama films early on was proved very beneficial. And I think that you know, as I haven't seen as much of the earlier stuff as I'd like, but are there any particular titles? before we get to something like Bucket of Blood that stand out for you in particular? Um, well, I think It Conquered the World is a really interesting film oh, okay. uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, it, it's got, you know, it's one of those Cold War science fiction films that feels a lot like uh, an attempt to sort of cash in on the invasion of the body snatchers. Ooh, okay. Uh, in a lot of ways. Um 
with the bargain basement <laughs> uh, alien that comes to Earth to conquer things. Uh, and it's got a really interesting cast because you have, uh, you know, Beverly Garland uh, as the, the female lead. Uh, you've got, um, oh, what is his name from biography? Uh, Peter, um, sorry, I'm looking it up right now just because my brain is not working. Peter Graves right, Peter uh, Graves. in the lead. And then Lee Van Cleef. Uh, as the sort of human antagonist in the film. Um, and it's just a really uh, uh, sort of fascinating, uh, uh, just cold look at the Cold War paranoia uh, in a lot of ways. And I like that about it. I, like, I love Cold War science fiction films. So yeah, that sort one of branching is, off of something like The Day the Earth Stood Still. Yeah, yeah, it's tying into that kind nice. of of uh, uh, story. But unlike the the day of the Earth stood still, you know, the alien is not here to sort of prevent us from destroying ourselves. It's here to take over. Uh, nice. And and does it through a sort of body snatchers kind of plot, you know? Whereas in body snatchers, you have the the pod people coming in and replacing everybody. In this film, we have the 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 alien uh, unleashing these little tiny bat like creatures that that sort of attach themselves to the back of people's heads and and turn them into these sort of uh, uh, slaves or these automatons in a way. Um, and and it's all you know, like the pod people, which were this sort of metaphor for the creeping red menace. I see those bat creatures as kind of the same thing, you know these these ideologies that are flying around and turning people into to uh, uh, good citizens who are are going to toe the line, that sort of thing. Yeah, if I were doing like a uh, thematic version of Directors Club, I would love to do those. Um, you got the body snatchers, you got. Uh, puppet masters, you got mm -hmm. invaders from Mars, <laughs> just like mm -hmm. all these different types of movies where the aliens come down and sort of simula simulate the the human race to some degree, and I always find that theme to be really compelling stuff. Oh so, yeah, me too, me too. I'm gonna have to I'll, I'll, I'll have to check this one out ASAP. Yeah, it's worth watching, and I think you know you can you can actually even see it on YouTube. Uh, it's pretty readily available. <laughs> Yeah, and a, a, a lot of his earlier films certainly aren't <laughs> daunting in terms of length, that's for sure. No, they were pretty, fa like uh, like Errol Morris said, they were kind of fast, cheap, and out of control. Yep. These, and that's kind of the way Corman was working, and his movies are just, you know, they move really quickly, too. Um, not just in terms of the, the length, but even the plots kind of, there's a lot of forward momentum uh, in those early uh, films because he was trying to just keep people interested uh, in what was going on. Yeah, I I mean a lot of the titles do sound like films of that era, but I mean I I'm very impressed by the length of the title for the saga of the Viking women and their voyage to the waters of the great sea serpent. Yeah, which was then sort of uh, uh, condensed into just the Viking women and the sea serpent. I think. <laughs> Yeah, but it's a great. I mean, it, it, it that's such a great title because it does yeah. feel like like a, the title of a big epic saga, <laughs> right? Right. So yeah, I mean, the first one I saw that he directed still remains one of my favorites, and that is a bucket of blood. Um, again, like I knew Dick Miller from Joe Dante's movies, right? First. Exactly. So going back in time and seeing him, you know, as, as, as a young adult was really 
really interesting to to witness and to see how often he pops up throughout Corman's films is great as well. Um, but yeah, this is this is about essentially a, a struggling artist that finds instant acclaim when he accidentally kills his cat and just decides to cover the body with plaster, <laughs> uh, displaying the plaster-covered remains. And, uh, you know, essentially putting on a huge one-man show, and it gets really out of control, much like the film that follows Little Shop of Horrors. Um, But yeah, it has a great script from Charles B. Griffith, um, and I think what makes it resonate even more strongly for me is the fact that it's satirical. Yeah. You know, and that's not something... I don't. I don't think he really touched upon too much. Like he just focused on genre filmmaking, escapism, and thrills. But this time he's sort of making fun of, um, you know, intellectualism and, to, I mean, to make it like a modern viewpoint. Hipsters. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's interesting because in his uh, in his biography, the the how I made a hundred or something how i made like 100 movies in hollywood never lost a dime or something like that i think is the title right he talks about how when he made a bucket of blood he he believed at the time that he was the the only person working in that comedy horror genre um Hmm. which is not exactly correct because you know about I want to say about like 30 years before you had uh, James Whale making The Old Dark House, uh, which was a a horror comedy with uh, a number of, I think, Boris Karloff and a number of other uh, uh, horror movie stalwarts of that time. Um, But with A Bucket of Blood, like you were saying, I think it's really interesting how it it was not just going after uh uh beatniks because part of the 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 story of the film is that this this uh janitor he's a janitor right is that what it was like he works uh, yeah at the bar he starts cleaning out as a janitor up. right right and he wants to be accepted into the beatnik society and Correct. that's why he wants to be a great artist so you got corman sort of poking fun at the at the beatniks uh not maliciously so but then he's also going like you said at that sort of that that uh, intellectualism of, of those people who kind of take themselves and their art too seriously. Uh, and just by having it set in that beatnik world, Corman is again kind of demonstrating how he's, uh, v- you know, very forward thinking because he was looking at was what was going on in the culture, what was really popular. And he sort of tailored this, this goofy little horror movie uh, to, to tie into that. Yeah. He, he was definitely, Embracing this idea of um, commentary on even just the industry that he finds himself in, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, and the different types of people he comes across. Because, I mean, Walter in this movie wants to be taken seriously as an artist, but at the same time, he's also imitating the celebrated work of the other artists. And I think... I mean, he, he starts out with his own original idea, and then it sort of becomes like a fad, in a way. And then he just decides, well, this is my thing, and this is what people are really, really responding to, so I better keep doing it. Um, and then, you know, there's like a, a moment with the uh, like a beat poet saying something on stage, and all these different people having, like there's a table of people, uh, a table of beatniks reacting to it. And one of them says, like, that was marvelous. What did he say? 
<laughs> and didn't you hear him? No, man, I'm too far out. <laughs> it's just like she, they just want to whatever that whatever goes like whatever that guy says is cool essentially, and Walter falls prey to that because mm-hmm. he sort of sees that behavior and begins to absorb it in a way. And I, I think Corman is taking a swipe at that sort of thinking um, and asking us to ponder like what lies beneath uh, what we consider to be art and when do we take it seriously and when do we not essentially yeah and you know just just hearing you talk about that I just it, it gave me an interesting idea about this movie and about little shop of horrors and what they're kind of saying and and part of it is uh, I think the 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 movies are kind of talking about the value of being an outsider to a degree because with, with both movies, you have these guys who want to be accepted uh, by, by people who maybe they see as their betters or whatever. Uh, And they go to these, these extreme lengths that ultimately (laughs) end up dooming them uh, because they just want to be a part of the, the in group. Uh, so in a way, it's like those two movies are kind of uh, thesis statements for Corman's career to a degree. You know, this idea of being an outsider uh, and the importance of that. Yeah, he he embraces outsiders as protagonists just as much as um, the last director I covered was Nicholas Rogue, who mm. constantly just chose to look at people who would be considered literally rebels um, and you know, what that means both in terms of their own personal identity and what society frames them to be. Uh, and I, I, yeah, I think that's, you know, we can even transition a little shop of horrors because yeah, they are very, um, thematically similar and involve like one thing kind of going out of control. And it's funny because (laughs) this is very different from the version I saw in theaters as a kid that I grew up with. Um, and I will say that I don't think the Seymour in Corman's version is quite as strong as Rick Moranis. Um, but it's a farce to some yeah. degree. I mean, it's, it's, it's mostly ridiculous. I mean, how can you not laugh at the plant, you know, his voice in this? is <laughs> Which ridiculous. I believe the voice of the plant was Charles B. Griffith. Oh, um, really? If I remember correctly from from Corman's autobiography, uh, they talked about how Griffith was just off camera doing the voice, and they were going to dub in a different voice later, but they thought it was so funny what what Griffith was doing, they kept it in. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And one other thing, you mentioned Nicholas Rogue just a few moments ago, uh, also got his start under Corman, uh, because he was the cinematographer on The Mask of the Red Death. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. I think I said Nick I meant to say Nicholas Ray. Oh, okay. Well, there made, you go. I made the rebel joke. <laughs> gotcha. That's why I was getting a little confused, but but I, when I thought you said Nicholas Rogue, I apologize. Oh, that's okay. I'm not sure if I said Nicholas Rogue or Nicholas Ray, but I meant Nicholas Ray. Um, All right. <laughs> just because like, yeah, the whole outsider mentality is fascinating to both of these directors and um I think <laughs> Little Shop of Horrors is... I mean, there's a reason why this concept worked again, even as a musical. Like, mm-hmm. um, I, I, can, I can give or take a song like Suddenly Seymour in the, in the musical version, but I think through and through, that, that is a, a quality example of a remake done right. 
Um, oh yeah, I, I agree. I mean, even as I, because I love the the Corman version of Little Shop of Horrors, sure. but I adore I adore the musical version. <laughs> right, exactly. And I I had when I first saw you know the musical as a kid, I had no idea about the original um, until later on when I was working at a video store. Well, no, I think I, I must have known about it sooner than that. But when I was working at a video store, I saw. Um, the the I believe the VHS cover art for this had Jack Nicholson on the cover holding the plant, and I was like, "Whoa, Jack Nicholson! Mm-hmm. I gotta see this!" And it's yeah, he, he, he essentially plays the Bill Murray crazy dentist part, or not dentist, but the patient. Yeah, and he he's only in it for about five minutes, uh, but in you know uh, in later years to 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 sort of drum up more interest in the movie, they sort of put that character uh, in the center of a lot of the advertising. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense, especially given uh, Jack Nicholson's career trajectory. Um, I think I discovered. Uh, both versions pretty close to one another. Um, I can't remember exactly which one I, I saw first, um, but I remember like right around the same time because I saw the Little Shop of Horrors, the 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 musical version in the theater mm-hmm. uh, when it first came out, and really loved it. Uh, and I remember right around that time too, there was uh, a, a horror movie host from Green Bay, Wisconsin, uh, which was near where I was living. And I would watch uh, Ned the Dead's Chiller Theater a lot. And he would show Little Shop of Horrors quite often, the, the original, the Corman version. Uh, so that was, like I said, I kind of, I kind of came into both of them uh, or into awareness of both of them around the same time. Wow, Ned the Dead, that's great. Is he, Ned like, the a Dead, Sven, is he like a Svengoolie? Kind of? He's kind of like a Svengoolie, a little sillier, though, oh, uh, okay. than Svengoolie. He was, he was just this uh, you know, guy from northeast Wisconsin uh, who ha- had a show on a, one of the local access channels and, nice. and uh, just ran a bunch of old horror movies and uh, definitely shaped a lot of my tastes going forward. <laughs> Yeah, well, this was, I think it still is essentially up for grabs, like it can go on any, um, what's the what's the term I'm thinking of that's where a movie is pretty much similar to Carnival of Souls, uh, up, like any any company can pick it up and distribute it. Yeah, like public domain. Public domain, thanks. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's what I was thinking of. Right. Yeah, I believe you're you're right about that because of the the something with the rights issues uh, left it kind of open for anybody to to distribute it. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes in in lesser quality, unfortunately. But um, yeah, yeah. No, I think I I mean it, it is a farce. It doesn't really have a whole lot of subtext going on, but I mean no. you can you can find it. But at the same time, it's 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 more silly. And I think the tone is very consistent here. Um, I mean, Jack Nicholson just comes in like a force of nature mm-hmm. and, and does what he does so incredibly well. Um, and then, you know, in the in the in the remake, Seymour doesn't pretend to be Steve Martin's dentist character. That, no. That's a change I realized too, because I yeah. was like, I noticed that contrast was at least that plot point was very different um, in the original. But um, yeah, I just I love the the 
that smile on his face and giggling like Peter Lorre, practically, but when, <laughs> when he reads aloud from that magazine called Pain. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, Nicholson is just really, just brilliantly hilarious uh, in this film. But I think everybody uh, yeah. is really good. Like, I love one of my favorite things about the movie, because the humor... And I hate to use this term, but the humor is at times kind of dated sure, uh, because sure. a, like audiences in the 21st century aren't going to get jokes about cranberry farming uh, and the perils <laughs> of cranberry farming, which I actually had to look up. So I knew what the heck that joke where he talks about how he found the plant uh, in a packet of cranberry seeds or something. Oh, right. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the, the wordplay is one of my favorite things about this film, like the, the way that characters will mispronounce words or or say the wrong thing uh and it's just just it's really subtly funny when when they use that word play and i think jonathan hayes uh just the, the guy who plays seymour does a fantastic job of that of just sort of having this character who uh is saying these things that he doesn't really know what they mean yeah, I can I can see that for sure. And then uh, once again, Dick Miller pops up in here and just starts eating flowers, and I'm like, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, no, I'll eat them here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and well, another inter- uh, uh, what? No, I was just gonna say like all the side characters here are are, are, are fully realized, even if mm. you know they're about to meet their comeuppance, you know. <laughs> Yeah, like the Gra- Gravis Mushnick, the Mel Wells character. Yeah, um, he is just the 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 looks on his face uh, <laughs> when when all the craziness is sort of happening around him uh, is just brilliant. These these sort of bug eyed, deadpan looks, um, and Jackie Joseph uh, as Audrey is great. Um, and yeah. speaking of Joe Dante, she goes on to play Dick Miller's wife in the Gremlins films. That's right. Yeah, I didn't realize that until <laughs> watching it for this podcast. Yeah, I think I mean I think I think the relationship in the remake is a little bit stronger probably because we we spend more time with them. I mean, the the remake d- despite it being a musical is like 110 minutes long. And mm-hmm. this is what an hour and 10 minutes long. <laughs> uh yeah, something like that. Uh yeah. hour and 12. According to IMDb, yeah, I know. I I definitely like all the characters in both films. Really, I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's just it's not it's not Corman's version's fault that I saw it so much later and kind of have other uh, visions of what these characters are first. Mm-hmm. But it works. It works entirely on its own. If you just want to watch this story without all the crazy musical numbers, <laughs> so right, exactly, it's just a fun story regardless. Yeah, and I like, I like the um, one of my favorite aspects of it is the the sort of dragnet cop that is investigating everything that we don't we don't get that character in the in the remake. That's right. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think it's it's a and again it's one of those sort of era specific jokes that is probably lost on a lot of people uh in the 21st century but i think it's i think it's a really funny gag and and uh the way the fact that they sort of keep it going throughout the entire film uh is is really i appreciate that a lot yeah uh, and and like you said the witticisms and just the the fun wordplay is definitely um one of the highlights here uh it, it's i love it i love it when they just I love a fast-paced energy to dialogue. I mean that that possibly just goes back to you know my early discovery of His Girl Friday, and just mm. loving 
that those exchanges and how just how quick people think. And mm-hmm. I think that's a huge reason why I love the show Gilmore Girls so much. Right, right. <laughs> you know, so I mean, maybe it's just like, well, I certainly wish I could think that quickly. But I also just love people who have a rhythm to the way they talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that that's... That's that's throughout this a little bit, like you mentioned, and I think it's just it's just a very memorable, fun um, little horror movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree, and and like you said, just the the way they sort of underplay things uh, and don't really. They're, they're not really, you know, nobody's mugging for the camera, but, but yeah. at the same time, everybody kind of knows what kind of movie they're in. Uh, and, and the cast really um, definite, they, they, they kind of elevate the material uh, a little bit because they, they are sort of in on the joke and, they, and they're all game to, to make the humor come, come forward. Yeah, and... It's crazy to think that this was kind of a throwaway two-day shoot because it was yeah. all done on leftover sets. <laughs> yeah, which was which is fascinating to me because C- Corman basically just said, "Hey, we, you know, I saw that we have these sets available. Can I shoot something there?" And, right. and they did it. And I think he did that later on too with maybe the terror, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, um, where they just had like all the leftover sets and let's just make something, even if we don't have any idea what we're gonna make. Yeah, and Corman was kind of famous for doing a lot of that. Um, and he was kind of famous for just recycling things in general, uh, partly because it was a way to save money. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that's completely endearing. And what also endears me to Corman is during this period, he produced what he would even call his most personal film. And it's a film I hadn't seen until I knew I was going to do this episode. Mm-hmm. It's a film called The Intruder, which features a very young William Shatner in his uh, feature film debut as a racist who <laughs> poses as a quote unquote maybe sociologist, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I believe uh, that's what he says. Yeah, and he's he's determined to stir up trouble in a small southern town. Uh, that's really on edge about the idea of integration at the time. Mm-hmm. I I watched this, and even just the elderly hotel clerk casually saying the N word really took me aback. I was oh just, my, yes. <laughs> I was just like, what? Oh, oh my god, we're in this world. Okay, whew, yeah. Um, this this kind of blew me away. It's it, <laughs> it definitely stands out in Corman's filmography as something that to me is very successful, but in terms of the box office, not at all. It's, I think it is still to this day, the only movie that Corman's lost money on. Yeah. Um, It's one of, uh, of of one of a handful that didn't like pull in a substantial profit. Uh, and this is the the one that he likes to say that it, it was the only one that didn't like, didn't break even uh, at all um and what's interesting is is i think it's not because of the quality of the movie because i watched it to prepare for this podcast as well and i thought it was fantastic um especially as someone who comes from uh a a small town where casual racism is kind of the norm Mm -hmm. um i i think it's a fantastic sort of uh expose of that but i think part of why it didn't 
succeed at the time was because of how fresh that that wound uh was on the american psyche you know this idea of integration and and racial uh uh harmony or whatever you want to call it uh people were still grappling with that because this movie came out in 1962 uh at the height of the civil rights movement um and i just don't know if people were uh, people at that time were kind of prepared to deal with something like this yeah it's almost like if Paul Greengrass released United 93 a month after 9-11 or something, you know, it's like, I don't, yeah. I don't think people were ready for this type of subject matter because they're going to the movies to escape reality. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. And I think, I think Corman, uh, you know, again, this was a, a case of him sort of being on the forefront of things, uh, but he was a little too ahead of his time. Uh, on this one because it was so it was still so raw and uh, fresh in the public consciousness. I wonder if this was the first example of people yelling out, too soon! (laughs) In the movie theater. (laughs) That's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's a little hard to watch, but you know, at the same time, it's really confrontational um, about about racism in a way that it, it, it would be very hard to pull off today. Oh yeah. I mean, I was really hoping Spike Lee was going to do that with um, uh, Chirac. Right. He does to some degree, but yeah. it's also mixed with a lot of different elements. And I kind of wanted, I kind of wanted more of do the right thing in Chicago. But I I understand that's just not the filmmaker he is now. But I still love the fact that we are basically you know forced to spend time with someone who's essentially just stirring shit just to stir shit up because this is what his beliefs are that he doesn't believe in integration and he wants to prevent it from happening to where yeah. it just causes all this chaos yeah, and, and that's what I kind of find interesting about that character uh, and something I wanted to bring up because it's almost like uh, he is just this force of chaos that comes into town uh, to sow disharmony. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of reminds me of uh, like when people were talking about the Joker character from Nolan's Dark Knight. Oh. You know, how we just, when we first see this character, uh, we just sort of get that zoom in on the Joker. And then he's, it's like we don't get any backstory for him. We don't get any uh, real, true information about him. He's just this force of nature that comes in uh, and is is uh, chaos embodied. And that's kind of what Shatner's character is like here. You know, we get those early shots at the beginning of the movie where we're looking out the window of the bus at at all the scenery going by and all the people working out in the fields and things uh, in this small town and then the camera just sort of pans over and there's Shatner. Uh, And it's, it's, we don't, we don't really learn anything about this character uh, except that he comes from the North and he's part of the Patrick Henry society. Uh, But beyond that, we don't really know him. Yeah. And I think it's, it's one of those endings too, where, as much as he gets his comeuppance and, you know, the town doesn't eventually side with him, I still think of it as, well, he's just going to move on to another town, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I still find it really dark because yeah. this character still exists and he's still out there and he's, you know, like, well, I tried over here. I want to go try somewhere else because it's just like that's, he is that force of nature that, 
you can't stop. Yeah, there's, he's there's gonna go to gonna be somebody out there. Yeah, exactly right. He's gonna go to Shelbyville and sell him racism in a monorail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very true. And but, yeah, know, I, in this political climate too, I I can't help but reframe things as like what what the hell is gonna happen if Trump becomes this agent of chaos? I don't that, I don't like thinking about it because I don't want to believe it's gonna happen, but, but it's hard not to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to happen, unfortunately. I'm already resigned to it, but I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, but yeah, watching it in this context, uh, in this socio-political uh, mess that we've sort of found ourselves in made it even more resonant. And I really feel like, because this movie, this is not a movie that's talked about very much uh, no. these days, even among film fans. Um, but I think it deserves to be, and I think it really is uh, ripe for a reappraisal, uh, especially because of how relevant and how timely it still is. Yeah, it's the, it's the kind of movie that I respond to so strongly that... Um, you know, if it was as accessible, like on like on Netflix, or if it was on Blu-ray or something, it would be something I'd love to do a commentary on, mm-hmm. do research on. Um, just because it's like, oh, it's so unlike anything either Corman has done, or un- it's it's very. I mean, it is. It hits you in a way that is, you know, like there's there's certainly a lot of films about this subject. You know, you have mm-hmm. your Mississippi Burning and, and Color Purple, and there's certainly a lot of movies that, you know, people might dub like as a prestigious picture that um, wants to confront these issues but might back off at times. And I don't mm-hmm. I don't think this film backs off one bit. Um, no. I mean, the, the, when they start, when they accuse, you know, uh, a young African-American man of rape, that whole sequence towards the end is just like tension inducing and so it it made me so angry as it went on yeah i mean it's harrowing yeah you when when he goes out to confront the the mob essentially um i was very i found myself feeling very anxious and nervous uh in a way that a lot of other movies just don't don't have me feeling um and I think, you know, to your point about stuff like The Color Purple and Mississippi Burning, what's interesting is, you know, while we're still kind of dealing with the issue of racism, uh, those movies came out so far after the the civil rights movement that yeah. they just don't have the same sort of impact necessarily mm-hmm. as something like The Intruder, which was just, you know, right there sort of confronting it head on. Yeah, I think there needs to be more filmmakers that do that. In this, yeah, I, you know, in this climate especially too. Yeah, and I think we see that not to to bring up, you know, controversial stuff because I know what's going on behind the scenes, but you know, I think we see that more and more with with stuff like The Birth of a Nation mm-hmm. and uh, you know, what Ava DuVernay is doing and things like that. I, I think we see more and more people kind of starting to uh look at confronting what is going on uh, while it's actually going on. Um, and, yeah, I, and I, I sure think that's... So. Oh, yeah. I mean, because but I, I just... I, I, I'm always concerned about, you know, just the... The controversy behind a movie can sometimes really impact it. 
Mm-hmm. I, I mean, sometimes it really actually brings more people to the movie, like in the case of Last Temptation of Christ, or mm-hmm. you know, like when there's controversy surrounding something, it can it can either help the movie or harm the movie. Um, I remember when you know the whole Clinton Lewinsky scandal was going on. It all depends on timing because mm-hmm. you really swag the dog at the time that all this is going on. Everybody's flocking to the theater to hopefully get some more insight or at least get, um, you know, kind of an entertaining perspective on what could be happening um, politically at that time. But then later on, you release a movie like Primary Colors, it bombs because people mm-hmm. are done. Yeah. You know, they're just depleted of any interest at that point. Well, yeah, and I think one other thing that's really interesting to keep in mind, too, is, and this is something that I have been thinking about a lot, but the ability of the B-movie to yeah. sort of tackle these things more directly than a studio movie. Because with a studio movie, you know, you have people who are concerned about the bottom line. You have people who are concerned about, you know, how we, how it's going to play to certain audiences and this, that, and the other thing. Whereas with, like, an independent film uh, or, a, or a sort of really low-budget movie uh, that is kind of flying under the radar, you have more freedom to tackle these issues uh, directly. And I think that's becoming more and more difficult for people as, as the studios uh, sort of exert more and more control, not just over their own product, but the product that they release and the product yeah. that, they, that they kind of oversee uh, through their subsidiaries and things like that. So I think it's it's not necessarily that people aren't trying to confront these things, but that it's it's becoming more slightly more difficult for people to do that in the sort of capitalistic climate that we are in in the 21st century. Yeah, and it's really unfortunate because I, I don't like wishing movies to bomb, but you know, with the barrage of comic book movies we've gotten, I, I secretly want them to. <laughs> To not succeed, or at least not have audiences flock to them, because we're then we're just we're just going to keep getting more and more and more of them. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't I don't necessarily I'm not down on escapist entertainment, and certainly when there's a quality comic book movie, I'll go see it and I'll certainly embrace it. But you know, even even at this time, I want I want more independent films and I want more. Um, Studios taking risks because you think about 1999 with mm-hmm. Fight Club and uh, Magnolia and American Beauty and being John Malkovich and all these movies, I believe were primarily released by major studios. I think Fight Club went through Fox of all things, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so they were taking pretty big risks at that time. So why can't that happen again? You know? Yeah. Well, and what's good though now is, you know, just to get off on a tangent, but what's good now is that we have uh, people who have access to equipment that allows them to make their voices heard sure. without going through the big studios. I mean, look at, look at a movie like Tangerine, exactly. uh, you know, which was shot entirely on an iPhone 5 supposedly. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's definitely about giving marginalized voices uh, 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 or marginalized voices and making them heard. Um, so it's like, we still have that happening. It's just with the studios sort of exerting more and more control. It's, it's, we don't, we don't hear them as, as loudly as we did with something like 
the where or you know maybe we didn't hear it as loudly with the with the intruder because you know who who is really talking about that uh, these days? So I don't know. It's weird. I don't know how much things have changed or if they have. Yeah, no, that's a good point, and I think. You know, I think Corman took just a huge risk mm-hmm. by deciding to work out of his comfort zone and say, hey, I want to make something that I'm passionate about. Uh, I just read this incredible book by, I believe it was Charles Beaumont, mm-hmm. and I think this story needs to reach an audience. Even if they don't agree with it, they'll at least experience it. And I think that has as much merit as anything else. I mean, clearly... I, I I much prefer films that are confrontational and audacious. So, you know, this this to me was just like right up there for me in terms of a like oh my god, this was made in 1962. Mm-hmm. Like when when Patrick and I first saw something like The Servant and the time period that that was made, we're just like whoa, these mm-hmm. types of subversive films were being made back then. And for some reason too, they even strike. Um, they, they they hit you in the gut a little bit more because of that fact that, yeah. that they came out at that time. Yeah, so. and like I said, I just think it's easier for someone who is working outside of the system to be able to say that and do that. Sure. Yeah, and I I, I mean, this film actually, it, it was critically acclaimed for its time, mm-hmm. and it won some awards, and certainly it was, uh, you know, he, he lost money on it, which kind of soured the guy. I mean... Mm-hmm. He just he just ultimately said like well the American public simply doesn't want to see this kind of film so let's just give them what they want because they all they're going to the drive-in to see genre picks and exploitation and escapism. Yeah, and apparently what they wanted was a lot of adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe. Exactly. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of around that same time was when the Poe cycle was going on. Uh, and that was really hugely successful for Corman. Yeah, and rightfully so. I mean, the I've, I think I've seen at least three. I've seen Pit in the Pendulum, Premature Burial, is that Poe? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, yep, that's one of the post cycle. Um, Carrie, my partner, Carrie Lynn, and I last Halloween actually did a, uh, we did a themed month and we watched nothing but the Corman Poe films. So we, we saw almost, almost all of them. I think we missed, there was one uh, that we weren't able to get. I think that was Tomb of Legea. Um, I think that was the only one we weren't able to get our hands on. Um, yeah, I think but, that's Scorsese's favorite of the bunch. Yeah, and I was kind of upset that I wasn't able to to see that one. Yeah, I need to see um, that too. But yeah, right. Pin the Pendulum is is great. Um, Premature Burial is is really good. Um, yeah, I that one actually really gets to me because I, I mean I have a little, I guess it's claustrophobia, but I certainly respond very very uh, viscerally to any sequence of being buried alive. So your your Kill Bill Volume Two, Serpent hmm. the Rainbow. This, I'm just like, oh god! I mean, part of me needs to turn away. I, I don't know how I got through buried, to be honest. <laughs> I still need to see that one. <laughs> but that's the one with Ryan Reynolds, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I think it's because we were able to escape that that environment by focusing on like he has a cell phone, he's able to call people, so mm. we're able to uh, leave that 
at some at, at certain instances. But I, I I'm a I'm a big fan of um, Ray Milland, and yes. you know I think I think Premature Burial is quite good. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think I, I just love cool dream sequences where uh, different colors are used, <laughs> and that's that's done quite well with like a blue and green hallucinatory sequence where he's sort of confronting his fears in a way, and I just yeah I. I mean, ultimately, the twist I could see coming a mile away with, like, oh, yeah, it was the wife <laughs> who set this whole thing up, of course. But mm-hmm. it's still really high-quality stuff from, yeah. from Corman. Well, I think, all for me, all of the Poe films work really, really well because they're these visually inventive, yeah. uh, gen- the ones that are supposed to be frightening are kind of genuinely frightening and unsettling. Um, like, I, I'm with you on the premature burial thing. The, the burial sequence is legitimately disturbing because you're getting his... Uh, you're getting insight into Milan's character and how he's saying, you know, I'm alive, I'm alive, but he can't move, he can't do anything. He's he's not just trapped in that coffin and then trapped in the grave. He's trapped in his own body at that point and yeah. can't like and can't get out uh, at all. Uh, so I think that really works well. And then something like the Raven. Uh, which is not just visually inventive, <laughs> but it's really it's fun. Yeah, it's a lot um, of fun with that, have, with that ensemble of of people. Yeah. There. It's, it's that was gonna be my yeah. That was gonna be my point because you you get the the great uh, uh, interaction between the different characters. You know the 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 Peter Lord uh, Jack Nicholson stuff where Jack Nicholson's constantly you know touching his father <laughs> and trying to trying to you know get his approval is just so funny. Yeah. Uh, it's all really really good. Um, yeah, I but also, Mask of the. I also think premature burial. Real quick, I've had sleep paralysis. Oh really? I don't, you, I don't know if you've ever had that, but God, that is the worst feeling in the world. So maybe that's another reason why that has such an effect on me. But yeah, that, that could be because I mean, he, he essentially has that happen to him. Right. Right. Like yeah. you know, I I can't move my body. I I'm alive. I'm alive. yeah. That whole thing is just. Ugh. But anyway, there's a there's a great just to get go off on a tangent again real quick there's a great story by the comic book writer uh who created concrete paul chadwick and for a while he was doing these these backup stories where it was like you know all these these hundred horrors or something like that and one of them was this story about this guy who wakes up and can't move or talk or anything and he notices that his wife you know she like he hears her sharp intake of breath and realizes that she can't move or anything and he doesn't hear anything outside and realizes that everybody else is uh, undergoing this uh, and then the dog like hops up onto the bed and he's just like, Oh my God, what happens when the dog runs out of food? <laughs> it's, it's terrifying. <laughs> wow. I'll, I'll look into that. Yeah. You, you should check it out. It's really, it's like a five page thing, but it's just, it's super effective in terms of horror. <laughs> uh, so would you agree that possibly the mask of the red death is the best of the bunch? I I personally think that is the best of the bunch. I love that movie. I've watched it, like I said, last Halloween when we had our, our Poe uh, revisitation. I've seen it when I was younger, and I rewatched it for this podcast, and it gets better every single time. I know. Right? Um, it is, visually, it is one of the most stunning films I think I've ever seen, uh, partially because Nicholas Rogue mm-hmm. was the cinematographer, and they, they, the use of color and, and uh, the, the imagery that they come up with for the scenes are just dreamlike and, and 
uh, haunting in so many ways. And Vincent Price is the king. Like, every time... I mean, he is so charismatic and yet so creepy and just, like... He, he finds that right balance. You know, he's not one or the other. He's not... I mean, some people can sort of... I guess dismiss it at times as being hammy, but I think he's like subtle ham. You know, <laughs> like he doesn't really show off and do things in a way that I would consider to be, you know, grandiose. He he's really just the right level of villain. Yeah, and for people who've never seen it, I mean, just the plot basically. You know, uh, Vincent Price plays a European prince who sort of terrorizes the the townsfolk uh near his castle uh and at the same time there's this plague that's spreading through the countryside called the red death Mm -hmm. uh and so prince prospero the the vincent price character uh, finds this woman in the village that he finds attractive, um, uh, a young woman named uh, Francesca, played by Jane Asher. And he sort of takes her into his inner circle uh, to save her from the Red Death while sort of tormenting her father and the guy that she loves. Yeah. Um, and meanwhile, you know, Prince Prospero is sort of pledged his... his um, fealty to satan you know he's this this satanist and all of the stuff that goes on in the and and this is one thing that i find interesting about it especially watching it now in our socioeconomic climate is Mm. it's almost like uh this this it's almost like a commentary on the one percent versus the 99 percent to a degree because you have these people who are living in this big palace and they're you know they're they don't Mm. care about the red death They're, they're they're so far beyond it and they they are just living in debauchery and, and uh, flaunting their wealth. Meanwhile, everybody else is just scrounging and scrambling to survive. Uh, so the movie, again, kind of like The Intruder, it was really ahead of its time in terms of the themes that it was dealing with. So the Red Death is essentially capitalism, maybe. <laughs> could be, yeah. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's a scary thought to have. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> See, I love it. I love it when, even though I just rewatched it, and then I do this podcast and I have a conversation. It's like, now I want to watch it again. <laughs> I know, I know. Like, I, I as I was watching it for the podcast, I'm like, I really should just pick this up on Blu-ray or something because... Is it on Blu-ray? I, gotta, I don't I, know. I don't know. It might just be DVD. One, yeah, this is, this is definitely one that should be out on Blu-ray. Good God. I still keep hoping that one of these days Criterion will, like, start doing the, the Roger Corman stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, like, I would love a box set of just the, the, um, of the Poe stuff. Right. Yeah, that'd, but, be, that'd um, be that'd be great. Yeah, let's enough of the French New Wave guys. Let's, let's get some Corman <laughs> in there. Well, we can do both. Oh, we sure. can do both. Sure, sure. sure. And, and speaking of that, though, this reminds me so much of like European cinema, Bergman. Uh, the Mask of the Red Dog. Yeah, the Bergman stuff, like with with the the Grim Reaper characters mm-hmm. who are all kind of color coordinated. You know, you have the Red Death who's all in red, and then you have the Yellow Death who's all in yellow, and the Blue Death who's all in blue, and the Black Death. And and um, I love how Bergman esque it feels at times. Yeah, absolutely, and. It just it gets really dark mm-hmm. <laughs> with like Vincent Price shooting a guy with an arrow and then <laughs> telling his telling his wife to kill herself essentially <laughs> with this dagger and yeah. there's this great cut too to another uh, scene 
right after he throws the dagger on the ground. Um, there's there is just so much to appreciate about this film and the use of color. It's I mean it is just something else. It, oh. it really it's sort of um, it's it's like a prelude to what Argento would do later on. <sighs> That's a great observation, uh, actually. Yeah, that it, it feels so much in line with one of uh, Argento's uh, uh, Yalo films or Suspiria yeah. or something. That I didn't even occur to me until you said that, but now it's like, oh yeah, yeah, I can totally see that. And it uh, really creates an atmosphere of dread, and I, those are my favorite kinds of horror movies. Not with the jump scares, like the new freaking Blair Witch. Mm-hmm. Um, I want the original Blair Witch where it's just mounting dread. Even if people say, nothing happens. I'm <laughs> one of those people. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, I know, I know. But, you know, oh. this this really, it takes itself seriously, but not in a way that is pretentious and eye-rolling. You know, it raises very interesting ideas about good and evil and the inevitability yeah. of death. So, it just it just works on every level. And I, I it's I've seen it three times. I can't wait to watch it. It might be one of those yearly traditions now. Yeah, it, it's definitely kind of emerged. Like I like before last Halloween, I had not seen it since I was young, um, which was when I re- first saw all of the the Poe films. Um, but now it has really emerged, not just as my, one of my favorite Corman films, but just as one of my favorite films. Yeah, and there's so much stuff in it that. Um, like you said, it's got that mounting sense of dread. Like when we build up to the dance of death at the end, uh, that, I mean, that sequence alone is worth, uh, seeing just because of how sort of disturbing it is. Um, but what the one scene that really, the one scene that affects me the most, and I don't know if it's that I'm, that I'm, that, that it's because it makes me angry or because it makes me feel a, a sense of shame or what, but it's when he makes all of his guests act like animals. <laughs> yeah. There's that I, scene where, where he's just like, you, you, you look like a frog. And the guy starts hopping around and you are, you're an ass. And she starts braying and stuff. And it's like, they're doing it just for his yeah. approval. And it's so debasing and so disgusting uh, with, with no gore or anything. It's just the, the physical act of people debasing themselves in that way for this rich uh, schmuck uh, that really just, ha- I don't know, it just, it, it leaves me feeling anxious in a I lot of ways. I can see that. I feel, I feel that, and I also can't help but laugh at the absurdity of a woman just like doing a crazy chicken imitation you know around the room just like really that's what you why well, i mean i guess that's their idea of fun i guess i don't know mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but they are doing it to uh, you know appease this guy that you know is basically the the who has all the power yeah know? Exactly right. And I think that's why I find this movie really interesting is because of that exploration of the power dynamics. And again, Mm -hmm. it kind of ties into that theme of the importance of being an outsider. Uh, Because the the young woman, Francesca, and the man that she loves uh, are not a part of Prince Prospero's society. And we see that society, you know, how, how... people are willing to stab each other in the back or, you know, make, make each other dress like monkeys and then set, set them aflame uh, as that one uh, character 
uh, the fate that he suffers, um, they're kind of outside of that society and they remain outside of that society. So again, we kind of see that that idea of, of the importance of being an outsider manifesting uh, in Corman's stuff. Which is yeah. interesting to me now that this is something I hadn't thought about until we started talking. <laughs> I know it's another joy of doing this for sure. Yeah, it's like oh, that just occurred to me. That's great. Yeah, but most of the time for me though, it's like after I'm done recording, I'm like damn it, I could I should have said that because. That <laughs> <occurred to> me. <laughs> yep. But yeah, I mean I think that's that that can be you know that's part of the fun too mm-hmm. when that's like afterwards I'm like oh darn. <laughs> yep. But yeah, I mean I I certainly have uh, I've grown a stronger appreciation for Vincent Price as uh, you know for his screen presence for his charisma for just like cuz you know my first introduction to him was through the Michael Jackson video you know just <laughs> hearing him as a voice right so it's just great to go back and see what he did for horror cinema early on as just a presence as just like the the best purveyor of 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 um body language and facial expression and at the same time also being this charismatic figure that could easily seduce anyone <laughs> yep so yeah you know he, he does that huge... here and he does that in haunted palace so, yes yeah that's an, that's another yeah. interesting film yeah that one is uh, uh... And it came out around, you know, that's the same time. It was like, I think, a year before the the Mask of the Red Death. Uh, and it was in the middle of that, uh, that Poe cycle, uh, because you have the Raven before that, and you have uh, Tales of Terror just before that, and so on and so forth. Yeah, there's there's still so much to see, even just from this era. Um, oh my! And so, not just what he what Corman directed, but what he produced at the same time. Right. Exactly. But then later on, I mean, towards the you know latter half of the sixties, he, he he started to adopt the counterculturalism mm-hmm. alongside very familiar names like Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper and mm-hmm. and Jack uh, Nicholson Jack Nicholson of course um, yeah. <clears throat> where you know before we get to the trip where are you on Easy Rider because it's one of those movies that I've always felt on on the outside looking in i under i appreciate it for its time but it just doesn't resonate with me on on any level well i'm i'm a i am a big fan of that film and in fact i i teach it in one of my classes in my world in my world of cinema class uh when we go through the history of film um i get to the 70s and talk about new hollywood and i use easy rider Maybe I should join in on that class. It. You could, you could. Um, but I, I think, I mean, again, I and and they talked about this on on another podcast that I listened to, uh, the next the next picture show about how the term dated is just kind of an unfair term because for somebody like me, it's like I I kind of acknowledge that uh, any film is dated the moment it comes out. Um, it's, yeah. it's kind of rooted in that time period. So I don't, I mean, I can see why somebody would watch Easy Rider and not be affected by it. But I still think given, uh, and, you know, the Pop Culture Lens did a podcast on Easy Rider, if anybody's interested in more of my thoughts on the film. Uh, but check that out. I think there is some relevance to today in terms of, uh, you know, the generation gap 
and uh, the the younger generation sort of trying to go their own way and do their own thing uh, while being judged harshly by uh, the generation that came before. And I think that's a theme that, you know, we see it recurring with every new generation. And I think because of that, uh, Easy Rider does remain somewhat relevant, uh, even as it's sort of rooted in those 1960s hippie values. It does remain kind of relevant in terms of uh, how the generations, the different generations sort of view one another. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, as a countercultural statement, but also just as uh, um, how you're right, how generations relate to each other. It's an interesting um example of that i was i was gonna say artifact but (laughs) it's 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 an interesting experience and i I Mm -hmm. think that especially if you're a cinephile it's something you you should see right yeah and and i'm not saying that you that you know people who watch it have to like it uh i don't think anybody should feel like uh, obligated to like anything uh but i I think i still don't really care for the graduate that much either so i don't know yeah I've come around on The Graduate, actually. The first time I saw it, I was kind of like, eh. But uh, in recent years, I've kind of come around to it in a lot of ways. Uh, but I, I responded really, because I, I was heavily into like the grunge culture in the 90s and sure. things, and, and uh, the, counter, the, the quote-unquote counterculture at that time, because that counterculture was pretty readily absorbed into the mainstream. Yeah. Um, but uh, I saw Easy Rider around that time when I was in my early to mid twenties, and it kind of resonated hmm. pretty, pretty hardcore for me from that first viewing. Uh, and it's only gotten more and more resonant uh, as I've gotten older. Um, I really, I really like that movie a lot. Yeah, but like again, I, I, can, like I, I understand. Earlier, um, I like movies about rebels in general. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, you're pump up the volume, you're rebel without a cause. Uh, over the Edge, which I think is an mm-hmm. underrated sort of uh, high school rebellion kind of film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean that's that it's something I'll probably revisit in, in the near future, and you know, especially if, if there's a commentary, I would like to check that out too because I think it'd just be interesting to hear other people talk about it. Yeah, I think there's a commentary. I don't know who does. I think it's Dennis Hopper does the commentary on the Criterion Ooh. release, I think. Mm. Um, I bought the BBS box set a few years, or Carrie got me the BBS box set for Christmas a few years ago. Uh, the one that has Easy Rider and Head and, and Five Easy Pieces and oh, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's, that's good stuff. <laughs> it's a fantastic box set. Yeah. So, the trip. You know, again, <laughs> I don't. we're not using the word dated, but I'm right. going to say that it's the... It's very much of its time. <laughs> right. It's exactly. It's very much of its time, and it's one of the first sort of subjective treatments of what it could potentially be like to be under the influence of LSD. Um, <laughs> I mean, and as, me- so- as someone who has taken mushrooms before, I will say that there was a lot of stuff in the trip that I was able to relate to. <laughs> okay. Well, that's... Yeah, you know, it's something I've, I, I still consider at some point trying. I mean, I think mushrooms would probably be the way to go for me, but I... Yeah, it's it's all it's always been a little bit of a disconnect for me when there's trippy sequences in the film, and they've become such a crutch in modern-day comedy, like, mm-hmm. oh, this person just accidentally took ecstasy, or this person accidentally <laughs> took acid, and now... This person just- ate a marijuana brownie. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's just, oh, I'm so <laughs> sick of that. I know. But, I, I know. mean, 
I liked, I mean, just towards the beginning, knowing that um, who's in this cast, mm-hmm. I was I was looking forward to it. I'm I like Peter Fonda, I like Dennis mm-hmm. Hopper, I like Bruce Dern, mm-hmm. and, you know, and Nicholson. I just like all these people collaborating together. Um, you know, I, I think Nicholson he he wrote the screenplay, if I'm not mistaken. For yes, that too. So yeah, that's to some extent it's it's a little autobiographical. Mm-hmm. In that regard, well, that and and uh, prior to making the film, Carmen and I don't know if you know this story, but uh, Carmen decided that in, in, for him to make a movie about someone tripping, he would have to do it himself. So he <laughs> went out and he took LSD and said he that he laid face down in a field for a while, just sort of communing with the earth uh, and seeing lots of, of weird things like a, a woman turning into a ship and flying through the air and stuff. Uh, so that was how Corman prepared for the film. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, I mean, I, I, re- I respect an artist immersing themselves into an experience t- in, in hopes of staying true to their art. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that makes complete sense. Yeah, and I think... One thing uh, I, you know, we haven't really mentioned, but uh, Corman was always pretty left leaning uh, yeah. throughout his life, uh, and as far as I know, he still is. Um, and I think the trip really fits into that because you know he was, he sort of had a, even as he was a kind of a shrewd businessman, he did have that predilection for the counterculture, uh, and so for him to sort of immerse himself into it the way he did uh, to make the trip. Uh, it doesn't sound too surprising to me. Yeah, most definitely. I'm sure he rode a motorcycle too for when he did the Wild <laughs> Angels. You know? I, I think he just seems like he, he seems like that kind of guy who's like, yeah, I'll try. I'll, I'll give this a go. Just yeah, uh, just so I can do this film right. Yeah, and I and I I enjoyed the trip. I mean, I don't know how you ultimately felt about it, but I liked it. I thought it was um, fine uh, for what it was. I think I, I don't mind trippy hallucinatory sequences. Obviously, one of my favorite directors mm-hmm. is David Lynch, and you know sometimes if you just throw them in there and make them interesting, you know, you, mm-hmm. I, as long as it's not like just like staring at a kaleidoscope for an hour. Yeah, um, and and I think Corman avoids that with this film, right? Uh, and takes a little bit of of liberty with uh, you know the the experience of tripping uh to a degree but i think that's to the film's benefit in a lot of ways um but i you know for me i i'm somebody who i enjoy the kind of 60s psychedelic stuff to Mm -hmm. a degree um like i like like movies like uh beyond the valley of the dolls and things like that are some of my absolute favorites uh and the trip i had not seen it until we agreed to talk about it for this podcast. Um, And it really, like, I really enjoyed that sort of almost documentary feel uh, of Mm -hmm. uh, documenting a person's trip. Uh, And I loved the fact that we had the Bruce Dern character who was there to sort of observe and protect uh, the the Peter Fonda character as he goes through this experience uh, because it helps to have this grounding uh, so we're not just completely in the character's head the entire movie. Yeah, which that, I think would get really old after a while. Exactly, and I think that's 
that's always something I've heard too. And you know, if you want to document the real experience, you know, most people are, have always stated the fact that yeah, be around people that you can trust that can be there mm-hmm. for you. Um, you know, either as guides or just people that can be there to help in some regard. So I yeah. think I think that's that's yeah, it's a really good idea, well executed. Not something I'd be excited to revisit on a regular basis, like Mask of the Red Death or something. Mm. But, I mean, I think its success lies in sort of tapping into the youth of its time, combining, like, you know, experimentalism without it being too indulgent. Yeah. It's not like an Andy Warhol thing. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's like a little bit of the outlaw chic of a biker movie infused into this and it helps that you have Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper. But yeah, I just, um, I, I went with it as opposed to being like, oh, this isn't my thing, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Cause, um, I like, I like giving Corman the benefit of the doubt. And I certainly like spending time with these actors and these characters. And you're right. There hadn't been anything like this before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and after, I guess, I mean, well, what, it, what's interesting to me is as I was watching it, just seeing how much uh, Easy Rider sort of drew from this movie, mm, okay, uh, in yeah. terms of the visuals and and uh, the the music and the way that people uh, the performances uh, tailored their performances, uh, it really felt like Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper were sort of laying the groundwork for what they would do later. Uh, with Easy Rider in this film in a lot of ways, especially toward the end when the Peter Fonda character is like running through town after he thinks that uh, he accidentally killed the Bruce Dern character and we see those the flashes of things coming at him, you know, the the different uh, uh, sequences of, of the city uh, sites that he's sort of encountering while while tripping. Yeah, and tapping a little bit into personal insecurity and you know, just s- sort of going into this into the subconscious is always something that um, you know. Maybe I, pro- I probably said this before, but maybe because I have such crazy, vivid, intense dreams that I never felt compelled <laughs> to um, take any s- sort of hallucinogen or experience that feeling in reality. Because I feel <laughs> right. like I confront a lot of emotions. <laughs> during my uh, my dream state to some degree it's like I'm always and I've always looked forward to dreaming because of that to some degree because like is it going to be really crazy and messed up tonight or is it going to be fun and wild I don't know <laughs> is it going to be a bad trip or a good trip really yeah um, so yeah I mean I don't mind when movies go down this route and even to some degree, the more indulgent aspects of some filmmakers like David Lynch, who just throw in a hallucinatory sequence just to do it, I don't mind that necessarily. Depending on the context, and I, I think right. it works. I think it works well with the trip. Yeah, um, I agree. I think, I think it, it, you know, Corman isn't getting too indulgent. He's just sort of. Uh, there are times when he's kind of playful, um, like the the bit where. Uh, the 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 Dennis Hopper character sort of puts the Peter Fonda character on trial, yeah. uh, in his own mind. Uh, I felt that was really uh, taking a lot of liberty with uh, what actually happens during a trip, but it it was very effective sure. because of how fun it was, even yeah. as it was a little harrowing. And clearly, <laughs> Corman is fascinated with 
um, the unconscious, the subconscious. Mm-hmm. You know, even in terms of a Freudian level with Mask of the Red Death, or I mean, Poe worked in those terms as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, I just I, I don't I don't mind uh, Corman doing this type of stuff because he does it so he does it so well, even in you know earlier films with dream sequences. So. Yeah, and he re- he does rely on that dream sequence imagery a lot. Sure. Um, I'm trying to remember the title of the movie, uh, The Undead, where he actually has a woman hypnotized uh, to visit one of her past lives. Um, and we see a lot of that sort of dream stuff where we when we go into her mind. Yeah. <laughs> so he's I- definitely, that's something that he's definitely been sort of obsessed with throughout his career no complaints here yeah yeah, exactly but i'm gonna complain this is gonna be the first time i i mean i'm gonna (laughs) we're gonna jump way ahead folks um we'll get to some other titles towards the end of of the discussion but um you you mentioned this i think you put this in your list and i've always been curious about it because i i believe it's to this day it remains the last film he directed yes which would be in 1990 yeah, Frankenstein Unbound. Yes. <laughs> you know, in this, uh, John Hurt has constructed an energy weapon that could end war as we know it, but, uh-oh, it has some side effects. It tears giant holes in the sky, the and most likely the space-time continuum, that suck random people away. And so he winds up going back in time with his talking car uh, in Switzerland in 1817, if I recall. Yep. And, yeah. Um, and it starts It starts in the far-flung future of 2031. Right. Right. Uh, you know, this one didn't quite work for me. I mean... Well, we should also say that in 1817, he ends up running into Dr. Victor Frankenstein. Very much so. And... And Mary Shelley. And Mary Shelley, played by uh, the lovely Bridget Fonda, What Happened oh, to You? <laughs> my, 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 my lovely Bridget Fonda, who I was smitten with for so very long. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. I can understand that. That's probably why I've seen... I've seen Single White Female many times because of both of the actresses yes. in that. Um, but, you know, I, uh, I don't know why this... Because when I see time travel, I perk up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I really do. I mean, that's just something like, okay, I, I'm, I'm I'm on board, but I don't know. It just it's it was a little silly. Um, and when it comes to like a B movie time travel story, I, I'm I, I would probably choose Warlock or Waxwork Two. <laughs> and, I, and I like both of those actually as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, this is like it's almost like Corman's take on uh, Time After Time. Ooh, good comparison. Where it's just like, yeah, you know, you get to go back and uh, affect history in one way or another, or at least inter- interact with the past in an interesting way. Um, yeah, you know, Raul Julia is really good. I I always like, I always like. Yes. Him, so yeah, and it's a great cast actually. Yeah. I mean, John Hurt, Raul Julia. You got Bridget Fonda. Jason Patrick shows up. Oh, right, uh, Michael right. Michael Hutchins from In Excess mm-hmm. uh, is in it as well. Um, yeah, Corman assembled probably uh, one of his best latter-day casts with this film. Um, yeah, it just didn't grab me. It felt a little tedious and a little too silly at times. The talking car. I don't know. I Maybe it's just like, again, it's sort of a, a product of its time. And, you know, it's... 
it's not bad, but it's just... I, th- I found it to be a weaker version of a time travel story, and the monster itself... Mm. <laughs> See, and... and- I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree a little bit here because um, I saw this when it first came out uh, on video, uh, mm-hmm. dating myself here. But I saw it because I was working in a video store at the time, uh, and we got the VHS of the film. Uh, but I remember I had seen trailers for it on other videos, so I was kind of looking forward to it. I think I also read about it in Cinefantastique magazine. Uh, ah, we're yes. going way we're going way back here. Um, so I was looking forward to it, and I remember I watched it a lot when I uh, when it first came out uh, because you know at the time uh, the options for genre stuff weren't as plentiful as they are now, uh, so we kind of took what we could get. But I did. I remember I, I I remember enjoying this, and I had not seen it uh, it probably in about twenty years. Uh, before rewatching it for this podcast, um, and I ended up enjoying it. Uh, I thought uh, I, I, I agree that it's silly, and I agree that there uh, is a bit of tedium throughout. Um, but I think the silliness is uh, intentional, sure, in a lot of ways. And I think uh, the, that just from a visual standpoint, this is one of Corbin's best-looking films. Like those those scenes of the future city where we see the the scar or whatever it is that's like t- torn open in the sky. Uh, yeah, that is kinda, some it really. Looks, it looks a little vaginal. I gotta say, it does look <laughs> a lot vaginal. <laughs> it's almost like it was ripped out of a Del Toro film. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think that I think that imagery is really striking and. I personally think the design of the monster is really interesting where he's all mm. sewn together um, like that. The, the, the image on the poster and on the cover of the, the VHS box was just the eye. Right. Uh, and you saw it like it was three different colors. It was like brown, blue and green. And you saw this, you saw how they were all sewn together. And, you know, if you look at his hands, he's got two thumbs, uh, one coming out of the bottom of the hand and one oh, coming right. out of the top because the hand it's like two hands that were sewn together incorrectly um i think that's a really striking image uh, uh and it's a it, it's a really original take on the monster it's not like anything i've ever seen uh before in terms of of the frankenstein story hmm. um so I don't know, and I like that. Like I, that comparison that you made to time after time, I think is such a great comparison uh, because of how it's taking uh, real history and melding it with fiction. Uh, and this film does something similar as well. Plus, it's just uh, you know I, I read a lot of science fiction at the time, uh, and this was based on a short story by Brian Aldiss, who was a pretty famous science fiction writer and responsible. Yeah, that name sounds familiar. I believe, uh, and I could be wrong on this, but no, I, I am correct. I just looked it up. He he wrote the the story that AI that Steven Spielberg's AI oh, was based on, okay, um, among many other uh, uh, great stories, um, hmm. and the ending where we see uh, Doctor <laughs> Buchanan going off to this future city, the last refuge of man or whatever it was. Uh, I like that. I think that's, uh, you know, it feels very much like uh, a science fiction story of an earlier era uh, 
than what we got. I mean, I think that's part of why I like this is this story feels like it's of a different time. Uh, like, it, like it's like something ripped out of a science fiction novel from the sixties or something. Yeah, uh, and I, I like that, that about it. And, but I, again, I completely get why somebody wouldn't resonate with it uh, at all. <laughs> yeah. You know, I normally, uh, I, I can get on board with John Hurt in just about anything. I just, I don't know. I I thought he was a little miscast. I don't know who I would cast in this role that would make it a little bit more compelling for me personally. But um, I don't know why. I don't know why. I mean, maybe it's just like I have a certain perception of him and maybe thinking of him as like kind of a, uh, I mean, not necessarily a wacky scientist like mm-hmm. Christopher Lloyd or something, but just... Um, this type of role f- felt a little out of place, but I mean, I adapted to it. I, I certainly went with the fact that he's in this, and it, you know, the, certainly the the rest of the cast is pretty stellar. But um, you know, I, I, I I'm, I'll give it a look again in the future. I just it, I well, wish I wish that I wish it had a better pace to it. And yeah, and that I can totally see. It is it is very oddly paced. Mm-hmm. It's it's definitely. When you said it's of its time, that's definitely of its time uh, in terms of those those low budget direct to video type things. Um, And I think with Hurt, I think part of it is and and this kind of hit me on this viewing. I don't know if we're supposed to like him. Hmm. I mean, he he's not the most likable character. Right. I mean, he there are times when he's kind of. Uh, compassionate, you know, like when he's trying to save the the young woman who is being blamed for the death of of Victor's brother. Um, but there are also times when he seems like kind of a jerk, uh, and especially when you know he just goes around carrying that laser in the in the trunk of his talking <laughs> yeah. car. Uh, it's like right. this is a weapon that's tearing holes in time, dude. You might want to be a little more careful with that. <laughs> yeah. I can see that. I mean, I think maybe again, it's like I'm part of my my brain was reframing this as like, well, he isn't Malcolm uh, McDowell in Time After Time. He just doesn't have that charm going for him. I, I'm not really invested into this character as as much as you know I was into um, this, this the story that developed in Time After Time. But I, I realized they're two yeah. completely different movies, and this is a, again of of you know a, a, a certain you know, type of film that was made in the early nineties, maybe something that would have just gone straight to video, but it's certainly not, it, it's not a waste of time. It's, it's worth seeing particularly just to see what, what Corman left, you know, or what was his final stamp as a yeah. director. And I do, th- I think there is something to be said about John Hurt being miscast because I think maybe somebody younger might've been, yeah. Like a younger, like a younger hotshot scientist who's kind of arrogant, uh, and uh, uh, sort of learns the error of his ways by through what happens to him, uh, might have worked better, and it might have uh, it might have helped make the romance with Mary Shelley a little more believable. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's it's sad that maybe he's not directing as much as we would hope, but. He certainly made up for it in terms of producer credits. Oh my goodness. 412 producer credits over the course of a, a, a 60-some year career. Yeah. 
a, a lot of executive producer credits. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's crazy to look, you know, just just through IMDb and see like the kind of straight to video schlock he would put up money for. Yes, uh, you know, I mean, just like Desert Thunder and <laughs> Bad, <laughs> Dangerous Curves. I don't. It's like what. Movies I would never have any inclination to rent from the video store. Well, I, I will say that uh, in the 80s, I rented a lot of them. <laughs> look at the, yeah, I should look at some of the 80s titles because I wouldn't be surprised. if. Uh, I, I mean, was... as, a, as a lonely nerd, you know, Barbarian Queen and the Warrior and the Sorceress kind of got me through many lonely nights. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I certainly, I, I certainly saw Carnosaur. Carnosaur, uh, I remember when that came out, because uh, again, I was working in the video store at the time, and we got Carnosaur right around the same time that Jurassic Park came out, and I can remember watching Carnosaur and just just being stunned by what I was seeing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Slumber Party Massacre 3. Slumber Party Massacre. And recently, if you'll notice, like if you go back to early stuff, recently uh, Carrie and I watched a, a movie that Corman produced called Forbidden World, uh, a.k.a. Mutant, uh, which was one of the hmm. many ali- alien ripoffs that Corman produced. Uh, sure. Forbidden World is definitely worth a look uh, if you can get your hands on it. It's not a great movie, but it is a great time. <laughs> Okay, well, it's, yeah, I'm looking at, man, do I remember some of this cover art, that's for sure, from the video right? store. A lot of oh, these. Mountain, so many great covers. Mountaintop Motel Massacre. Oh, yes. boy. Munchies. Munchies. <laughs> and then we've got The Devastator, yeah. uh, I believe with Lou Ferrigno. Am I thinking incorrectly on that? Let me double check. I think you're correct. Uh, oh no, I'm thinking of the Eliminator. I think, oh. <laughs> which may never, not have been a Corman film. I never saw Camp Nightmare. I should. See I don't think I ever saw that one either. Look into that one. I saw many of the Deathstalker films, mm-hmm. um, and I believe I saw at least one of the Big Bad Mama films. Of course, and probably some of the Emmanuel films. <laughs> Ooh, well. Yes, <laughs> but um, I, I, you know we're we're making a lot of fun of some of the things that Corman produced, but he did. I mean, there there are so many like really great movies that he produced. Absolutely. Um, I mean, just off the top of my head, uh, Death Race two thousand, mm-hmm. uh, the original remains, in my opinion, one of the best satires of all time. Uh, and is more and more relevant because of the political situation that we find ourselves in, I think, uh, where we have these leaders who seem to be uh, distracting the populace with entertainment and things while they go off and and do, you know, whatever horrendous things they're doing. Uh, And Death Race 2000 really ties into that in a lot of ways. Yeah, I can see that for sure. He's uncredited... Uh, a producer for Peter Bogdanovich's Targets. Yes, which, which I was going to be my next one. Yeah, that, that, that's a movie that I, I think Patrick and I saw within the same year and just kind of went nuts. Over Targets how, is... Ugh, it's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> it, I, I watched it... Uh, I watched it because it was one of the earliest movies of the week on the Dissolve, on my dear departed Dissolve site.com. Oh, yeah. Mm. Um, and that sort of spurred me to finally see it, and it just blew me away. 
Uh, and again, it's another one that's really, really relevant because of, uh, you know, the, the sort of resurgence of gun culture uh, in the mm-hmm. 21st century. And Targets uh, really feels oddly prescient in that way. Yeah, it certainly does. And it, it, it's hard not to think of that movie whenever I hear uh, there's a sniper on the highway or something. You yeah. Know? It's yeah. just, ugh. Unreal yeah. that movie, and I and I I like the theme that it, it has too. This idea because uh, for people who have not seen it, uh, basically Boris Karloff plays this actor uh, who is in a film that's being released, uh, this horror film that's being released, uh, and at the same time, this young man uh, just goes. He he sort of snaps and he just goes out and starts shooting people. Uh, like like Jim said, he's just sniping people on the highway. He's sniping people at a drive-in and all this stuff and the whole sort of point of the film is that the old horrors that are embodied by people like Karloff uh, just pale in comparison to the horrors that we deal with now exactly, uh, which is yeah. people just you know snapping and, and going on shooting sprees yeah. yeah that's one of those movies like The Intruder that afterwards you just had to take a breath and collect yourself <laughs> yeah and you know when, when I think about movies that Criterion needs to release Targets is high up on my list amen Amen. Um, yeah. But to get a little less heavy, uh, Rock and Roll High School, as you Yay! mentioned earlier. Rock and Roll High School is one of my all-time favorite movies um, for so many reasons. <laughs> not just because of not just because of PJ Souls, who uh, will course. will have my heart forever. I think. <laughs> I, um, I can see why. Um, she's so good in this movie, in particular. Yeah. Uh, and then you have the great Ramones music. Uh, you know, you have Paul Bartel, who is fantastic uh, in everything. Um, the ear mail gag. <laughs> there's, there's so much of the, the mouse uh, exploding because of the rock music being too loud. Uh, rock and Roll High School just is one of those movies that if I need to smile, uh, I can put on either like Rock and Roll High School or Singing in the Rain and and be happy. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Roberts is so boring. His brother is an only child. <laughs> oh, and Clint! I, I, oh my God, Clint I Howard, love it. love it. And you know, I don't. It's funny because we did an episode on Dante. I don't know if it came up. Well, because. I mean, how involved? How involved was Dante? In I don't. That I film? guess. I, I guess it's it's considered an Alan Arkish film. An Alan so. Arkish film, yeah. But I mean, how much did did Dante do? Uh, I, I guess it just it just says because I looked it up on IMDb and it just says he's an uncredited direct co-director. Yeah. So hmm. Hmm. yeah, it's tough. Yeah, I mean, um, in in the uh, Corman's World documentary, Alan and, and and Dante are sitting together through the interview through through their interview segment. So. Well, they did a lot together, and, and didn't like what was their first one that they did with? Was it Carmen? Hollywood Boulevard? Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was kind of the movie that that unleashed Dante on the world. Right, uh, and I've not seen that one yet, but it's eh, it's definitely on my list. It's it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's not one that I I um. I get very excited about, and it certainly it it pales in comparison to the kind of fun that Rock and Roll High School is, at least for me, anyway. Okay, but I mean, it's it's still it's still worth well worth seeing. You know, it's about making a B movie, so yeah. And they incorporate actual like uh, man, not raw footage, but you know what I'm talking about, stock footage. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a lot of a lot of stock footage from other Corman things. Correct. Um, 
similar to Targets, which repurposed footage from the Terror. Right. Which was an earlier Carmen film. Yeah. Um, it's incredible and, how all this connects and the yeah. many directors that he went on to help. Well, and speaking of that, I mean, you look at some of his early stuff like Cockfighter, uh, which was a Monty Hellman film. Yeah. That's a, see, know? I had no idea that he had launched the career of Monty Hellman. I wouldn't have yeah, thought well, that, but yeah. Did he, did he launch it, or was it because had Hellman done stuff before that? Or I don't. That's a good question. I don't he's, remember. He's one I need to explore a little bit further on, but become I've become a huge Warren Oates fan after yes. uh, Alfredo Garcia. Right. So <laughs> I need to see as much as I possibly can for, with, with War Notes. So mm-hmm. this is, ooh, and it's oh, it's free on Amazon Prime. Is it? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I have to look into that. Um, but Boxcar Bertha, Martin Scorsese yep. film. Yep, uh, you know, it's like the, the, the list just keeps going on and on and on. Uh, it's kind of ridiculous, the sheer number of people uh, who have just gotten their start like for a long time like the 80s and 90s that 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 time uh, when I was really starting to become a film fan uh, so many of the people that were the the leading voices in Hollywood at the time were people that had come out of the Corman uh, uh, factory essentially God bless this man yes he he brought some of the world's biggest actors the directors he brought credibility to exploitation films and genre films. You know, he just he just made indie filmmaking cool, and then it, yes. it eventually uh, sort of evolved into the blockbuster formula, like you mentioned at the top. So, yeah, I mean, Corman had that. I, I don't know if it was Corman that said this line or what, but he in his book he was talking about how the B pictures all became A pictures. Uh, at some point, because the movies that he was doing, uh, you know, the monster movies and the and the horror comedies and stuff like that, eventually became the the blockbusters. Exactly. Uh, you know, yeah. Jaws is essentially uh, you know Attack of the Crab Monsters uh, with a with a shark instead of giant crab monsters. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, you know, Piranha and all yeah. that stuff. Just <laughs> and as I told from there. And as I told Patrick, you know, Piranha never really, I was never a huge fan of Piranha. I didn't really care. No, but Piranha no. 2, man, the, that movie scared me when I was a kid. Because not only, you know, if in Piranha, just don't go in the water. In Piranha 2, they fly. <laughs> you're, you're not safe anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. well, I can understand how that can creep you out as a kid. No, yes. no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. Just, um, like the, just like the little uh, Harryhausen demons from The Gate. Oh, don't even get me started on that. (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, that was my original choice for Tracks of the Damned, but um, I I I thought let's just go with something a little bit darker and more intellectual. For we're doing Jacob's Ladder. Nice. So yeah, I'm gonna definitely have to revisit that one when the commentary comes out. It is. I remember it being great. Yeah. So um, let's wrap things up here with our top three directed Corman films. For this time, I know it's tough, but I think I can. I think I can. I think I can manage this. With number three, I mean, gosh, this is hard. Number three is <laughs> Mask of the Red Death. Number two is Bucket of Blood, and number one is The Intruder. I think I'm pretty. I'm pretty happy with that top three. I mean, I do like Little Shop of Horrors as well, so that probably mm-hmm. number four. 
Yeah, um, I, w- I was going to cheat and do like ties for some of these, but I won't you do can. that. I don't. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, I would say for number three, it would probably be uh, Little Shop and Bucket of Blood. Uh, because they're so thematically similar. Um, two would would be Mask of the Red Death. And I think for me, number one would be a toss-up between The Intruder and one we didn't talk about, but X the Man with the X-Ray Eyes. Oh, my God, we forgot that one. That's okay, <laughs> yeah. though. That's okay, um, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, uh, like, until I saw The Intruder, I was convinced that that was Corman's best movie uh, because it's so effective Ooh, in yeah. terms of what it's doing. Um and it would, you know, I, I mean, I would not be opposed to seeing a remake of it. Uh, but I'm surprised I think, that hasn't happened. Well, they've talked about it. Though Tim Burton was actually tied to a remake for a long time, huh. um, and it's been bandied about for for quite a few years. Um, but after seeing The Intruder, it's it's a toss up for me. I mean, I think The Intruder, in terms of like how personal that one was to him, uh, and how effective it is. It, it, that could easily make it his best, but I really, like I said, in terms of his genre stuff, uh, X Men with the X Ray Eyes is such a powerful, um, uh, effective horror film uh, in a, in a lot of ways that I think uh, I, I, it would be hard for me to, to decide between the two of them. That's a good call. I don't know how it slipped my <laughs> mind, but that's okay. Um, again, Ray Milland and mm-hmm. that final image of his eyes. Oh. Well, do you know the apocryphal, the sort of apocryphal story about what the ending was supposed to be? Mm, I don't think I do. So for people who don't know what the movie is about, uh, it's about the scientist who develops a serum that he thinks will help cure blindness. And he tests it on himself and it gives him x-ray vision. And soon he starts to see through the veil of reality itself. Uh, and at the end of the film, he wanders. Spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen it, but hey, it's a what fifty-some-year-old film at this point. Yeah. Uh, so he goes into this revi- tent revival, uh, and the preacher is just like, "If thy eye pluck, uh, offends thee, pluck it out." So he gouges out his own eyes, and then the movie cuts to the credits. Uh, the story goes that the original ending had him pluck out his own eyes and look up and scream, "I can still see," uh, and then oh. it would go to the credits. And I, I don't know how much truth there is to that but oh my god i would love if that were the ending wow. uh, because it's such a, a a freaky creepy way to end that story and also something i thought whenever he's wearing the sunglasses he looks so much like ricky gervais to me <laughs> like just yeah, that me you off. say that yes yes i could totally see that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no that's a great film uh mm-hmm. we'll maybe touch upon it in the sequel episode there you go because i'm there's so much more to see still there is Um, but god bless roger corman and all his contributions to cinema in so many ways i just i'm grateful for him he Uh, he deserved that lifetime achievement award he got a couple years or a few years back like more than anybody else i think he deserved that award Well, thanks so much, Chris, for being on this great episode. Uh, I think between this and the last one, I'm just like loving going back and and, and having these great conversations about older classic films that, uh, you know, I may have seen once, but, uh, you know, going back and revisiting them has been a real treat. So thank you, man. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation and I enjoyed going through the, the films that we chose because I, you know, I wanted to rewatch some of them and I wanted to watch some of them for the first time. So I appreciate the opportunity to do that. Anytime, man. So where can people track you down on this world wide web that seems to be all the rage these days? Well, if, 
if they want to follow me, they can uh, do so on Twitter at Christopher Olson. Just take all the vowels out of Christopher. Uh, they can follow the Pop Culture Lens at Pop Culture Lens on Twitter. They can find us on Facebook. They can find us on Podbean, uh, Tumblr, and iTunes. Oh, very good. Well, folks, the next official episode is in two weeks, and in two weeks, it will be October. Yay! Woo! Which means it's time to get a little scary. Um, <laughs> joining me for the next episode are uh, returning guests Al and Colin. We're going to talk about the horror films of Peter Jackson. So that's going to be so much fun. And yes, we are bypassing a couple of epic trilogies that became a wonderful franchise uh, that he's more known for. But I think it's going to be great to go back to Dead Alive and even... I don't know know how I feel about Bad Taste, but we got got a lot to cover. My my favorite probably will still remain Heavenly Creatures. But um, yeah, that's going to be really exciting. And then later in the month, more towards Halloween, returning guests Robert and Nat will be on to discuss the work of Jacques Tournay. How do you say that? Tournay? Tournay? Jacques Tourneau. Jacques Tourneau. Thank I you, believe. Chris. I, I think you're far more accurate. But uh, he's, uh, he's the director of such classics as, like, Cat People. So, good. And Night, good Night of the Demon. Yeah. Oh, they're so good. Oh, I know, right? Man, I'm so excited for October. I can't even tell you. This is going to be great. (laughs) So until next time, please visit directorsclubpodcast.com. Send me an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you in two weeks for the Peter Jackson episode. For Chris Olson, I am bidding you adieu. Thank you again. stuck in my head it was but that's enigma Enigma, yeah Yeah. (laughs) and and i'm i'm sad that i remember that i know it's crazy it's crazy how that works it's like i i see the word enya and then an enigma song pops in my head